Here's where we've been. We've been in the book of John. And two weeks ago, we talked through this miracle in which Jesus turned water into wine. And in all of it, it was, it was his friends and him, they got invited to this wedding. In the middle of the wedding, the dilemma comes up. What do we do with this? The dilemma is, oh my goodness, we're out of it. And he, she comes to Jesus and says, look, you've got to fix this problem. And he has to do this little, hey, don't forget who I am. I'm Jesus. She goes, you're right. She looks at the servants. She says, do whatever he wants. And the thing that, that I wanted to express and make sure we all got across was this idea that not only does Jesus save the day, but he gives us more than we can ever imagine. That's just who he is. And I'm not talking health and wealth and all those other weird things that we tend to do. I'm talking he blesses us, and he was sharing this, this concept with them that I don't just give, I give abundantly. And so he gave like 400 bottles of wine that particular day. But the goal of it, and at the end of it, and this is what I make sure, want to make sure we all understand, at the end of it in verse 11 was, is so that these disciples might believe. At the core of it, when you come to John 20, what he wants us to understand is that the heart of the gospel is that we might believe, and by believing we might have life in his name, that Jesus Christ didn't just come to just save us from going to hell. That's, that's so just a, a slice of the big concept. He saved us to have true life. And so with it, that's what he's after. And in fact, when you come to John 2, where we're going to be today, you can go and open your Bibles there if you want. But in John 2, he's going to come to the very end of it in John 2.22, and he's going to even say, no, this is still the goal, is that all the disciples at the end of it, after this, this time in which Jesus comes in and clears the temple, they believed. Verse 23 talks about this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his names when they saw the signs that he was doing. See, everybody in here, my, my pleading is, is that not just those of you that don't know Jesus, but those of you that do know Jesus would keep on believing. That we would keep on believing that Jesus is who he said he was, and in him we can truly have life. But in verse 12 in chapter 2, it's going to shift. He's at the wedding in Cana, and now it says to us in verse 12 that after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, can you imagine being on that 20-mile walk with them? Can you imagine what you were talking about? See, you have to almost go, do you remember when, like, Jesus rearranged molecules? I mean, it just would have been this moment where you were talking back and forth about the event, and, and not only that, but it was springtime, and that road that, that goes from Cana to Capernaum is just, I've seen pictures of it, it is beautiful, and you come out and you see the sea, and you see Mount Horam in the background snow-capped, and so these guys were probably walking along with him, his mom, his brothers, yes, his mom did have other children, she wasn't a perpetual virgin, and, and, and she just, the, the idea was is that literally, they were just on cloud nine. It says they get there. Then in verse 13, though, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the Passover is a huge event inside of the lives of the Israelites. The Passover celebrates when God took his people out of Egypt and rescued them out of bondage and slavery and oppression. And he wanted to bring them out, not just to take them to a land that he had in store for them, but he wanted to bring them out because he wanted them to come worship him. And so when the Israelites come together, it's to celebrate the, the, save, the saving of them, the, the whole concept of putting blood over the doorpost and God passing over them. And, and it's just, it was a huge feast, even to this day, that the, the Jewish people still celebrate. 
But what would have happened in this time is that while they're walking, now they've been to Capernaum, now they're going to walk to Jerusalem, is that in this walk, they had a, a time within it, kind of a tradition, that everyone would clean up the roads and paint things and make everything look nice. And so you know at the start, they're leaving just going, this is great. But the thing about going to Jerusalem is that by the time you get to Jerusalem, there's probably about 2.25 million other people that are going to come into that. 2.25 million. The closest thought I can even imagine is if you've ever been to Disneyland and you know the fireworks get done and you have that thought, oh my gosh, I got to get to the parking lot. (laughs) That's probably what it was like. The closer they get to Jerusalem, it's just Tijuana. And there's people trying to sell you things, you know, and you're like sitting there going, I don't know, do we need the blanket? And and it's just, everything is about this. And Jesus is walking in, but everything is moving towards this moment in Jerusalem where Jesus is going to come to the temple, this place that God had designed to truly interact with his people. A thousand years before so, uh, Solomon had built this temple. He had built it with the heart and the intent that God had laid within him, that this would be the place where God's people would come and interact with God. And as Jesus comes into this particular moment, as he walks into it, he, he says in verse 14, it tells us, in the temple, this is what he found, those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, for the longest time, because what's going to come after this, we're going to find out that Jesus, he ain't happy. And I've always, I used to, used to think, especially when I was younger, it was like, well, why is Jesus so angry? So there's some money changers and there's some people selling in this. But let me explain to you why he's so angry. These people that are the sellers, they became the sellers because they would, people would come and they were supposed to bring a sacrifice with them and there were these Levites then that would kind of tell them whether or not their sacrifice was pure and unblemished. And if it wasn't that way, then what would start to happen is, is that they would say, I'm sorry that it's not, but for 1999, we got this hot model over here that we'd love to sell you. And so they would move them over, and, and especially over years, this just got corrupt where these Levites and these, and these sellers started to get into cahoots together. And they would really start to then take even the animals, they would sell them this one and then work this animal back in, and they would sell this one to the next person, and they would just make exorbitant amounts of money. Now, the problem with this is if you look in there, there's also this thing in which not only were they selling these, these lambs, not only were they selling oxen and sheep, but it says they were also selling pigeons. And one commentator I was reading was, is these pigeons were probably about 20 times what they would have been anywhere else they would have bought them. Now the thing about pigeons, though, is who they were used for. They were used for the poor. Now I don't know how many of you have been to the movies lately. But I took my daughter and I thought, let's go see a movie. And so we walk in the doors, you know, we're at the little matinee thing together and we get in there and my daughter looks up with these little daughter eyes that just absolutely melt you. She goes, Daddy, I'd really like some popcorn and a pop. I, and then, you know, Dad, you're sitting there going, oh, baby, sure. What kind, of, what, what kind of soda do you want, sweetie pie, honey? And she looks at me and she goes, Dad, I just really want root beer. No problem, baby. 
So I walk her up to the counter and I get up there, right? And, and back in college, I, I forgot why we used to sneak food in in college. <laughs> and so I get up to the thing and I go to pay, you know, and, the, and I go, you know, hey, I'd like a Coke and a medium popcorn. And the, I remember this high school kid looking at me, no problem, sir. That'll be $500. <laughs> And I did have that, like, excuse me moment. <laughs> and he goes, oh, but sir, we can equip you with a large, which you can come back for free refills for only $600. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, I had a little bit of cash, and I looked down at my daughter, and she has those eyes, and I'm like, oh, they got me. I hand off the plastic, and I go, there you go. Hook me up. I'll tell my wife we're taking out a loan. But all these people would move into Jerusalem and these poor people would come and they wouldn't be able to afford oxen or they wouldn't be able to afford sheep. But the idea, and you'll see this all throughout the Old Covenant was, is they would be able to buy generally two pigeons to be able to do what they needed to do. In other words, what they were doing when they finally showed up is they were taking advantage of the poor in a terrible way. They were robbing them and oppressing them They were marginalizing them. In fact, a lot of the poor ended up not coming to Jerusalem anymore because of the way it would cost them to get there because they'd show up with their two pigeons and they would get there and show them and say, those are no good. And they would take and put them over and say, but we'll sell you these for 20 times more than what you paid for them before. If you were poor, you couldn't afford it. Not only was that the problem, but when they would get there, a lot of people started going, forget it. I'm going to walk my lamb for like 20 miles to get there. They're going to tell me it's not worth it anyway. So you know what, kids, just pack up. We're going to just get there. But in Deuteronomy, God was specific is that the animals here, these ones that he wants them to be, to be using, they were designated, they were offered as sacrifices, and they were to be done in a, in a very specific way according to Scripture. You were supposed to raise this this animal. You were supposed to take it in. You were supposed to take care of it, raise it. And the way it was supposed to work was that after you had done this particular job, you've raised this this unblemished animal, this this best of all of your your livestock, it was supposed to then have tremendous value to you. In some ways, you may have even loved the animal because it, it may have become for you almost like a pet. You have a small lamb that you love, you see it born, you go out with it with your kids, you feed it, you nurse it, you care for it, the kids play with it. And then you bring it to Jerusalem and you and the family understand how serious it is when they take this little lamb and they slaughter it. But what started to happen is these people, because of it, they started to get lazy. They just kind of started going through the motions showing up, expecting to be taken advantage of. And so they just came in without their sacrifice and in a weird way just kept accommodating the sellers. The money changers, those people that were there, they were kind of essential to this particular event because they were supposed to pay in these exact shekels. They were supposed to pay with the exact currency that was used inside of the temple. And so these people, they would come in with their money and they had pictures on them a lot of times of other particular kings and, and things that were important inside of their culture. But they would bring the money into it and they would then use this money to pay their temple tax. They probably already paid 25 to 30% of their giving in, in, in all kinds of different things from, from tithes and offerings and, and feasts and all kinds of other issues that they had. But then they had to pay their temple tax. 
That temple tax generally was about two to three days wages, but these, these guys that were the money gatherers learned so much about how to take advantage of people, and especially when it comes to the poor, that the poor would come in with their temple tax, but when they got there, they would get charged not two or three days wages, what would be the average person. They got charged more like five, six, or seven days wages. Again, ostracizing the poor, ostracizing people, and people just becoming lazy. But the thing that I think is so interesting, this event, and this is the part that I want to kind of zero down into, it's not only that they took advantage of the poor, it's not only that they made the people lazy, but we find out from Mark, there's two different times that this happens. Early in Jesus' ministry, this was our account in John 2, but later in Mark, we're going to find out that this same exact thing happens. Jesus has to come back and he has to drive people out again. And in Mark 11, it tells us that where this all took place was in the court of the Gentiles. Now, why this is so serious is that God always told the Israelites, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. I want you to live. I want you to be this light to them. I want you to help them understand who I am and what I'm about. And just think with me for just a second. Can you imagine, finally, you're a Gentile. You're more than likely somebody that is a God-fearer. You, you have a desire to know who this God is, and you show up at Passover thinking, this is going to be the event where I finally get to understand who God is and what he's about, and I get in there, and all I find is these money changers and these sellers taking advantage of people and the poor and then these people getting lazy in their worship. Is that what you would want people to see about God? God's intent was never that. God's intent from the moment that he started this, from the moment that we had the tabernacle and eventually this temple was that when people came in, they would be blown away by God. I'll never forget, I went to Africa probably about five years ago. I was speaking at an event, and I get done, and all these people are coming forward to me, and it was great that day. So many came to know Jesus Christ, and I was thankful for that. But off on the side, I constantly saw this one guy over there with his head down and even wiping away tears at different points. Finally, I, I get done with everybody, and I walk over to the guy, and I go, are you okay? And he looked back at me, and he goes, why does God hate me? what do you mean? He started to tell me about a televangelist that was on TV that told him that just send $20 and God will bless you immensely. Let me tell you something. $20 to those in Africa that make $30 a month, do you understand what he was giving every month? Two-thirds of his income was going to some idiot that was telling people, you'll be blessed more if you send me 20 bucks." all the while he drives around in a Bentley. I was so angry that day. I looked back at him and I said, don't you send that man another dime. And I said, I wouldn't want to be that man when he stands in front of Jesus Christ one day. I was angry. And is it any wonder why Jesus was angry right here? His whole heart, his intent from the beginning was be these people that come into an encounter with the true and living God. And what happens instead is people come in for this weird moment in which the poor are oppressed, the Gentiles are disenfranchised, the other people just are kind of going through the system just to get, on the, get in and to get out. And Jesus Christ must have come into this just going, what in the world? This was never the way that it was supposed to be. And in verse 15 it says this, And making a whip of cords, look at what he did. 
He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. See, this is why Jesus couldn't be this mamby-pamby guy. He wasn't twisting together, you know, little cords and going, get out, get out. Our image of Jesus is all wrong. As a stonemason or as a carpenter, when he was weaving them together, and the thing about him is, is that he had this righteous indignation, and he came in, and the intensity must have been incredible. With one hand, he's wrapped his cords together, and he's absolutely driving oxen out. And if you've ever seen cattle before, they're not small. He's driving the sheep out. He's unleashing these pens of these, these pigeons, and they're flying all over the place. With his other hand, he's grabbing tables, tipping them over, money going everywhere, people trying to pick up their money and in the middle of all of it we just think of Jesus as this nice docile kind of half Gandhi half Mr. Rogers <laughs> why hello everybody in Jerusalem <laughs> and he realized in there that they were turning what God intended into a joke. It must have been wild. I can just imagine the guys that are with him. John and James and Andrew and Peter must have just had their eyes like this. His mom must have been like, baby, slow down. But Jesus was just as much God at that moment as when he hung on that cross. He was allowing everyone to see something that he hated. A perfect, divine hatred. A heart for the downtrodden, a heart for the poor, a heart for the oppressed, a heart for these Gentiles that didn't know who he was. A heart that people not worship him half-heartedly. I read a quote this week from a guy that he says, show me a man or woman that loves much and I will show you a man or a woman that hates much. In fact, you can tell a lot about a person's love by what they learn to hate. And ultimately, Christ's hate all came out of this incredible reality, his love for people. He hated those things that kept people from seeing God. And so in this moment, in this anger, in this show, in this display of frustration, he comes in there to help them understand this is not how it was intended to be. And I can just imagine after everything's done and things are going all over the place and people are going, hey, hey, and everybody's kind of freaking out, what we find out right away inside of John 2 is what takes place next is here come the religious leaders. Look at verse 15, or verse 16. 17. 17. 18, there we go. <laughs> 1920. My daughter would be so proud, I'm counting. So the Jews said to him, Look at this. What sign do you show us for doing these things? I almost expect Jesus to go, I'll show you a sign. They were doing something so devious and so rotten at this particular point. See, at the core of it, Jesus always used to get after the Pharisees, and he used to talk about this, that an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Why is it adulterous for this generation to seek a sign, especially when Jesus is doing all kinds of signs? 
It's because what they're trying to do is to dodge, to create a ploy, to, to get, get everybody's eyes off of what they're doing. And Jesus would have none of it. They thought that, oh, if we can just deflect what we're doing onto him, and if people, man, we don't want them to see what we're doing, if we can get it onto him, people will never see this devious, awful thing that we have going on. It's no wonder in verse 17, man, for his disciples later to go, oof, that makes complete sense out of Psalm 69. They, they connect this idea out of verse 9 that, that David said, zeal that you were going to have for my house. It was, it was messianic. It was prophetic. This is what Jesus is going to do. And I love Jesus' response. Down in verse 19, he says, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. Can you imagine them going, what? <laughs> what did he say? In fact, look how they respond. But you said, hey, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But verse 21 tells us, but he was speaking about the, not, about the temple of his body. He was helping them to understand at this particular point, they wanted this miracle and they sued him, yeah, but it's taken 46 years. And in fact, it took Herod 20 more years to finish this thing, millions of dollars, thousands of people, all kinds of craftsmen and artisans and bricklayers, and, and you're going to raise it up in three days? And he had two kind of meanings that he was going on here. His first meaning is to look at them and say, when you desecrate my father's house, when you whitewash it with greed, when you keep people away from it, the poor and the Gentiles, when you get caught up in just this lazy worship of me, the temple is basically already dead. It was going to be destroyed 40 years later in A.D. 70. But at another level, he was making sure that they understood that temple, God left there a long time ago, but here I am. God's presence is right in front of you. I'm here. He wanted them to understand that this house that they were destroying, one day they would do to him. He wanted them to understand that the treasury of money for their father's house, the way they were so taken advantage of it, one day he would get sold for 30 pieces of silver. He wanted them to understand this, so speaking at two levels, he on one hand said, you've already destroyed the temple, but on another he's looking at them and basically saying, and you're going to destroy this one too. And he was letting them know that that temple might be dead, this place where people were supposed to meet God, but I'm right here for people to meet God. He was letting them know in clear ways that the glory may have left there, but the glory is right here in my life. I am the new temple. When I come back from the dead three days later, the entire world will be changed. Everything will go through me. There will no longer be pilgrimages to Jerusalem. There will no longer be a Hajj to Mecca. Everything will be about people coming to know the God of the universe through me. Jesus was redefining the temple. It was the place where God dwells. That's in Jesus. It's the place where sin is atoned for. That's in Jesus. It's the place where people come to worship God. That's in Jesus. It's the place where the priest intercedes for the people in front of God and that is in Jesus who's our great high priest and our intercessor and our advocate he was saying to them in clear and simple terms I am the place where you meet God now and I'm telling any of you in this room that don't know Jesus Christ maybe you're somebody that's an unbeliever and you're just kind of looking at this 
The place where you meet God still to this day is in the person and work of Jesus. And he loves you so much that he'll get all the junk out of the way. He will move it and he will get angry about that stuff because he passionately wants you to know how much he loves you. He'll bring churches along and he'll destroy churches if they get in the way because he wants his message to get out to you for you to understand this amazing reality of what he did when he was crucified to that cross and paid the penalty for sin and when he raised from the grave to empower us now to live differently. See, I I almost want to just beg amongst you, those of you that don't know Jesus, is that's how much he loves you. But let me just talk to those of us that are believers in here. The Bible says in two different places that when Jesus Christ left, the place where people to encounter God was amongst God's people now. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 calls all of us, the church, the temple. It's why I did the series I did on what is the church I wanted everyone to realize that I am so glad there's a person, Jesus Christ, that loves this church so much that if need be, he'll bring a cord to this place. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he loves us. Churches are created to be the place where God's presence flows. Churches are created to be the place where sin gets dealt with. Churches are places where people get to know God. Churches are supposed to be places where worship happens, where we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service of worship. Jesus Christ wants so desperately amongst all of us to create within us his temple so that we might now model to the world who he really is. And I'll tell you what, if we're not careful, we can become like those Jewish people were 2,000 years ago. You can start to just show up to the gathering of God's people. This building isn't the church. God's people are the church. And you can start to go through the motions and sing some songs. And and you can even get together with other Christians and just go through this lazy way in which we're doing nothing. And Jesus will not put up with that. He won't put up with us being consumers is the best way that I can figure out how to frame it. When we come to know Jesus Christ, we know this. I have died. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. My life is now caught up with Jesus. I don't matter anymore in one sense, but I matter incredibly in another. But too often within churches, we come in and we say, here's my buck. I'm a consumer. Now I want things. I want a great children's ministry. I want great music. I want good preaching. And Todd, if you're not funny and compelling today, then you stink. Why are we paying you? I, 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 when you come to know Jesus Christ, gets tossed out the door. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I would say the greatest reason people don't come to know Jesus Christ has very little to do with how incredible Jesus is, but has so much to do with churches that become about me, me, me. Our world is dying to be exposed to the amazingness of who God is. A worshiper in my head, instead of a consumer, is just the opposite. 
I was trying to think how he says it, and I, the only way I could come up with is, is, where can I give in such a way that the most number of people benefit? Where can I give so that someone else gets God's love and grace and mercy extended to them in a tangible way? If it's not about me, if it's about God, my brothers and sisters, regardless of who they may be or may not be, those people who don't know yet God, the poor, how do I serve them? The worshiper asks, how can I take what I have and invest it so that others are blessed, so that others know that they're loved, so that others know that there's a God that is incredible. They have the opportunity to worship God as well. How can I take care of all these things so that people might get the best picture of who God is? See, let me ask you this question. Why did you come here today? Why? As an unbeliever, I want you to know God, but as a believer, why are you here? Why do you gather with other believers outside of here? See, at the core of it, we have to ask this question because it tells us who we are. Am I a consumer that just occupies space or am I this one that's truly a worshiper that wants more than anything for people to accurately see who God is? Let me bring it down one more level. The Bible also says that you personally, your body is the temple of God. What things are in your life that you know that you want Jesus, even if it's, even if it's the, this picture of who he is to come in with these cords and to rid them from our life so that it doesn't so that it doesn't keep us from coming and worshiping that God I don't know what it might be in your life but just for a second just think about it what things are keeping you from worshiping God and let me ask you this do you want Jesus Christ to come in and deal with them are you so passionate about Jesus that you don't care what gets rid of Maybe I need to rephrase that. Too often, we, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we started burning our albums and stuff out in the thing. I'm not talking about just launch them out. I'm talking about what things keep me from truly worshiping Jesus. And do you want that? My greatest fear as a pastor is that Cornerstone would ever become just a bunch of consumers that unbelievers then would come in and go, what in the world? We'd make this whole experience about me and forget that it's not about me, it's about Jesus. That we'd lose sight of it in the world, that we'd kind of just go through our humdrum lives and we'd lose sight of the poor who God has such a huge heart for. This Jesus right here needs to encounter our lives, doesn't he? About two or three years ago, I don't remember when it was, I met a couple named Britt and Nydia Fuller. And um, they came over, we sat down in my living room, and uh, I still to this day don't know why they came here. Because I don't know, <laughs> I don't even remember what I said to them. But I remember being there with them and realizing, oh my gosh, this couple and, and uh, Emmanuel was there. I, I just, I remember all these people sitting in my, my living room and I saw people that weren't consumers but were worshipers and wanted people to know Jesus Christ. 
they were living in Chicago at the time, and, and uh, they were part of a really good church, and, but they wanted to come out, and they wanted to reach people, not only that spoke English, but spoke Spanish, and they wanted to know, is, is Los Angeles a place that we can come and we can be involved in? They wanted to be to this world. They didn't want to be a hindrance. They didn't want the gospel to be stopped. They wanted to truly be the temple. And I remember sitting down and interacting with them, thinking at the end of it, oh, they're never going to come out here. And all of a sudden, we got an email saying, hey, we're coming out. They didn't have a clue where they were going to plant, and God ended up moving them over into Canoga Park, moved them into this uh, apartment that God has done a work in, and people have come to know Jesus Christ. Found him a job, and he told me to say this correctly this time. He's head of rehab over at Paso Robles. Los Robles, whatever it is. <laughs> the hospital thing out there. But God is doing a work from them, and my grand fear in all of your lives is you're going to have stuff in your life that you're going to hold on to that Jesus needs to come in and get rid of, and you're never going to experience what they're experiencing over in Canoga Park right now. And so what I want to do is I want to show you a video of what happens when people truly become the temple. And so just feast your eyes up on the, on the screen if you could. The Bible clearly teaches us reconciliation, and reconciliation is this idea that, that relationships will be restored, that they be made right. God, through Christ, has been reconciling the world to Himself. He's been re restoring that relationship that we have with Him. And yet, if we've been restored, then we also have been given this ministry of reconciliation. And God says we're to have this message as well, we're to carry that to others. We always think of that vertically, and that's a right understanding, but I think uh, Paul also wants us to understand it horizontally. He says in Ephesians 2 that this dividing wall, this wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, whether it be between black and white, Hispanic or Asian, it's been broken down through Christ. And that through the cross, through the gospel, we've been brought together as one. We're one body, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our background, and we should demonstrate that. across the American church. We're the exact opposite of that. And actually, in 95% of the churches across America, the majority group is eight out of every 10 people. So that means that there's a white church that eight out of every 10 at least are white people, or there's a black church where at least eight out of every 10 people are black. There's no multi-ethnic, there's no where the, where the nations, where the ethnicities have come together to be one. And so that's our hope here, is that God would use us and that God would build up here a multi-ethnic body. In Los Angeles County, uh, one out of every 10 foreign-born uh, individuals in our nation live here in this county. So there's over 4 million immigrants here in L.A. County. And then in Canoga Park, it's almost half. Half of my neighbors are immigrants. So as we began to live in this neighborhood and understand this neighborhood, become a part of it, 
we realized that there were some significant barriers, socioeconomic barriers of, of ethnicity and class and of language. And our heart was to see those barriers broken down in this neighborhood, in this area. And so that's what we're waiting on God to do. That's what God is doing, is He's breaking down these barriers of ethnicity and class and language, bringing us together as one body, that we might gather together, and more than just gather together, we might do life together. So we just recently decided to move forward with this space. And it was a tough decision for us, but we wanted to uh, let this be a place. We want to consider this place as a neighborhood center, that this is a place where we serve our neighbors, where we love our neighbors, where we do life with our neighbors. And that, by the way, we also gather here for service on Sunday. I'm going to have uh, all the... Oh, that's like a chunk. <laughs> I'm going to have a lot of them for These are a lot of the people that are planning over in uh, Canoga. So come on up. What's neat about this is that uh, over the last probably three years, I think, there are fourth church plant that's going out from here. Um, over into L.A. County, and then we're going to have a fifth that's going to go down to, into South Central. And so there you are. I'm going to let you go. This, But anyways, I'm going to let Britt just kind of share a little bit for a second. So just to let you guys know as I start to speak, this is Melanie, and she's interpreting for me. And this is what we do every Sunday. This is what we do when we gather as we have it in both languages. And our heart is also that God would send us a Hispanic man to teach with me, that half the time we're speaking in Spanish, and it's interpreted to English. Half the time we're speaking in English, it's interpreted to Spanish. But I wanted to give you guys a taste of this, a taste of what life looks like when we come together when we But God isn't working. He was there at work long before we came. But we just get to be a part of what he's doing apart demonstrating himself. And so that's our prayers that God would build us up into the fullness that that neighborhood might see the fullness of Christ in us. He might speak through us. And it's a concern of mine as we share or even Todd shares a story or we share a video that you might think that this is a special interest group that this is something, oh, that's just for that place, just for that neighborhood. But God's heart is that we would have a heart for the poor, that we'd have a heart for the immigrant, we would reach out to our neighbors. And so that's what we're trusting God to do, that he would build us up. Our name is Living Stones, and it comes from 1 Peter chapter uh, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. And he says that like Christ, who was rejected by men but chosen and precious by God, he's chosen us as living stones and he wants to build us up into a spiritual house that we might be a holy priesthood as Todd has talked about. Um, we make sacrifices on his behalf that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're doing, and, and I'm thankful to be able to come here before you, the relationship that we have with the leadership here uh, with you as a body, and just ask you to pray for us. So I'm going to have the leaders and elders Entonces, to come forward, and uh, we're going to pray for them uh, right now. So, if you could, just, if everyone could just stand and join me to, to pray for them as we pray for what God's, uh, God's doing over there. So find somebody to lay hands on and all this. All right, would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much for this group of people. 
God, thank you that uh, they were chosen by you, collected by you, to truly be your temple over in that area. That people now would come to know you because of it. People that might have been hurt, uh, maybe in various churches, would come and they would experience refreshment in life. That God, this group of people, you would protect from so many of the different things that hinder us from truly worshiping you. And in the end, God, we just want to see Jesus proclaimed. We want you to saturate Canoga Park. And Father, we want to see you then send people all over the world from this group of people. Mandes gente por todo el mundo. Thank you so much for them. Muchísimas gracias por ellos. In your precious name. Amen. En tu nombre precioso. Amen. All right.